Tech Talk. Tech Talk. With Jess Kelly. This, this is News Talk. Welcome to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we'll hear from Comreg about the work they do to investigate those really annoying scam calls and bad mobile service. The husband and wife team behind Run Angel will explain how their device works to offer peace of mind. And we'll talk about digital consent. How can it exist in the era of spam? As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. I often reference the Office of Comreg when talking about consumer issues relating to telecommunications. They have an excellent coverage map for those looking to see what networks cater to their area and are a one-stop shop for many problems that can often arise. And while they are a great source of information, many people don't know exactly what they do or how they do it. And I'm delighted to have Barbara Delaney with me now. Uh, Barbara is the Retail and Consumer Services Director for Comreg. Uh, Barbara, welcome to the show. Can you start by explaining to those who aren't sure what exactly the role and function of Comreg is? We have an extensive role in terms of electronic communications, premium rate services and postal services. And the roles for each of those sectors are varied um, in terms of competition, innovation, connectivity. Um, but in particular, I suppose we're, we'll focus talking on consumers. In terms of the consumer role we have, our strategic intent that's related to that is we want to ensure that consumers can choose and use communications with confidence. And I suppose we have a number of objectives which we feel help us achieve that. Uh, for example, you know, that consumers would have the information they need to be able to deal with their service provider confidently. Or for example, that consumers have a choice of service providers in the market so they can choose which, which best um, meets their needs. We also um, ensure that vulnerable and disabled end users are adequately protected. For example, we want to make sure that the sign up process, you know, when you sign up to a new provider is simple, but yet uh, secure. People can switch without disruption or um, without kind of incurring charges that they didn't expect, that people get the service that they sign up for, that they understand their bill and it is correct. And uh, in terms of our consumer function, if things go wrong, that they can come to Comreg to seek, I suppose, advice and assistance, and also to get um, their their matter resolved as best as possible. So that's kind of a whistle stop mm-hmm. of the consumer aspect of the role. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned there that the consumer side of things. So, uh, if we focus in on some of those examples that you've just laid out there now, in what instance does a consumer reach out to Comreg? Um, you know, is it, for example, if they move to a provider and they don't have good coverage? Is it, you know, if they are being overcharged, maybe they that they're not being let out of their contract? All of those type of consumer puntery issues, I suppose, for a want of a better phrase. Yeah, so we would deal with, you know, exactly the issues that consumers are are coming up against on a day to day basis, as you mentioned, uh, you know, billing and issues regarding um, particular service or not getting what they felt they signed up for and so on and so forth. Now, the, the what we do is the operator or the service provider themselves have to have a code of practice in place to deal with their customers. And we've set down some criteria for that code of practice. We might go, in, go into that later, but they, they must deal with the customer in the, their own customer in the first instance. Now, if the consumer can't get in contact to, to, to make a complaint or to, to have their issue resolved with their customer, then it's something that they can come to Comreg with. But if they do get in contact and the, the matter isn't resolved to their satisfaction, then they should come to Comreg within 10 days of that, allowing the, cost, the, the service provider to deal with the issue under the code of practice. And if they don't get a resolution or uh, any contact, or indeed they're not satisfied with the resolution, then they can um, then they can come to Comreg to have that matter looked at. So if 
as a real example, if a customer looks at their bill, it wasn't what they were expecting. They ring their service provider and to, and have a have a communication to to talk about the bill. Why is it a particular thing? And they feel that it's still not satisfactory and it hasn't been resolved. Then they should come to Comreg and we'll look at the the specifics of that case and whether there is something that has gone wrong that shouldn't have gone wrong or some right hasn't been upheld. Anecdotally, um, you know, if you judge by Twitter and if you judge by some of the emails that we get here to News Talk, one of the real frustrations consumers have with service providers, um, communication service providers, is very often they can't get through to customer services. They can often be bounced around to different on-hold menus. They can get a bounce back to emails but not get to talk to a person is that something that your office comes up against or encounters quite often as consumers who are so frustrated they don't know where else to turn so they come to you? We, we have had instances um, with, with specific operators where um, for whatever reason consumer care has got blocked up or jammed or has had uh, particular delays. Now what, we, what I would say which is really important for consumers to be aware of is that particular issues like billing, like switching, where they where consumers have rights and those rights need to be upheld, and there is a, you know there is a right to have a complaint mechanism, uh, which is efficient and, and, and timely. Then that is something that they should, if they cannot get through to have those kind of matters resolved, then it is something that they should come to Comreg. What I will say, and I won't talk about specific operators, but each operator will have a particular channel for complaints, complaints resolution, which may be actually different to their general consumer care number. And I think it would be important for consumers to uh, understand that, that there is a different one. If you come onto our um, phone line, we do point people to what those numbers are uh, for, for complaints within the, the different service providers. So that's something that people should be aware of, that there is a distinction um, in many cases between general consumer care uh, line for particular issues versus an issue which has occurred, which is a, a, a kind of a, you know, an, an issue that needs to be resolved, be it either billing or service or something that the customer um, needs to progress and there may be a, cha a different channel through their service provider for that. And in any case, if, if that channel is something that, that they can't get through to, then they should be able to come to Comreg and should uh, use one of our channels, which I, I can tell you about later on, mm -hmm. um, to come directly. And we can then raise the issue with the service provider and progress it in that manner. You alluded to it earlier on, but what are the standards or the requirements that Comreg have laid, has laid out for, um, say, mobile network operators in terms of dealing with consumer complaints? Because ideally, if I'm a consumer, I have a problem. I want to be able to call the service provider and get it resolved in a way that I deem to be satisfactory. But obviously, these are businesses and it's, life just isn't that simple. So what, what are the procedures from the network side of things um, as Comreg has laid it out? So what I talked about earlier is the service provider code of practice and this code of practice must be in place irrespective of whether it's a mobile provider or a fixed provider or, or a broadband provider, it's a, an electronic communications provider. They must have a, a first point of contact for complainants. So um, as I explained, without kind of going into the specific details of each one, that may well be different to the general consumer line in most cases. Uh, they must record the complaint. So um this situation where somebody might ring up and um talk about their complaint and then the next time they ring there's no record of it that you know they must have a record of a complaint and they must have a means of recording those there the time frame in which the service provider shall respond we've said that they must come back to acknowledge the complaint within two working days and they must have a procedure that they ha have set out in their code of practice for resolving this complaint um, and, you know, they must be, be able to set out in the in the code of practice where reimbursement or payments um, and settlement of losses must be incurred. So I suppose the, the standards that we've set at the moment mean that the service providers need to need to deal with their customers initially in, in terms of 
the actual complaint. If that falls down at the first hurdle, in other words, that the customer can't even get in contact to make the complaint, then the customer um, should come to Comreg and and note what has happened in terms of trying to make contact, trying to raise the complaint. And that is something that Comreg will, will take on board and deal with the customer with, with directly at that stage. In terms of resolving issues with the different providers, uh, how, how, I suppose, what's the, what's the communication, what's the process like between Comreg and a service provider when there is a, a problem that needs to be resolved? So I suppose it depends on the case. There can be, you know, numerous inter- interactions back and forward. But in a straightforward example, Comreg will raise the, the issue with the service provider as to as to what the issue uh, is distilled down to. And um, there could be a number of different issues, but we'll raise the issue and seek a, seek an explanation and a resolution. Comreg will then look at that and and um, in line with the what the rights are for the consumer, ascertain whether that is an appropriate, in, in Comreg's eyes, whether it's an appropriate uh, resolution. And um, if the matter is resolved and we consider it appropriate, then it's resolved. And if not, we, we will intervene again to, to kind of, to, to be in a situation where uh, we outline to the service provider if this is or isn't an appropriate or whatever the case may be, depending depending on the interaction. So it, it, it's it's a process of, I suppose, continual interaction um, t- until the matter is resolved. Now, there could be a situation where it is resolved uh, in the eyes of Comreg, we feel that the resolution is appropriate. Um, however, the customer is still not happy. And in that case, uh, there are certain criteria must be met, but in general terms, we do offer a further dispute resolution process where where the case will be reviewed and determined um, independently. One of the big issues facing uh, consumers at the moment, and I am in this pot as well, is being targeted by either scam calls or scam text messages. Does any of that fall under Comreg's remit? Yeah, just in terms of of the the re- there has been a re- first of all to say there has been a recent upsurge in in these calls or spoofing calls. Um, they are nuisance callers or or scammers or indeed, um, you know, kind of uh, recording or automated calls with a fake caller ID that entice the customer uh, or the the person to answer the call. Um, and we are aware of those. Um. We have been, uh, I suppose, working with the various different bodies, um, including um, Garda Siakona and the Revenue Commissioners, um, to, 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 to look at this to see what could, could be done. Um, what we have been doing is we've been highlighting the, the scams on our website, so has, have other institutions, and we have been providing, um, at this point, advice for consumers to be wary of these calls. Uh, missed calls from from similar numbers, um, maybe to starting off with your own number, or, but certainly numbers that you're unfamiliar with, and don't you know not to answer by call back or or whatever those calls. Um, uh, and we have been issuing advice. You know we have a number of different um, uh, tips and tricks there, but the matter I suppose is, is being looked at by by appropriate bodies um, uh, in a wider context. And another issue that a lot of people around Ireland um, face on an ongoing basis is the issue of coverage. Uh, we know that a lot of mobile networks will say that they have a certain percentage of coverage around the country, which sounds fantastic and it is fantastic. But there are people who still are in black spots uh, when it comes to either phone signal or indeed um, internet signal. Is there any complaint process or any process in place for people to flag that within Comreg to alert yourselves that they're not being catered to when it comes to basic mobile service? So maybe Jess, I'll handle this question on on kind of two levels. One is kind of the information to consumers in terms of you know what what services are out there and 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 what what is the coverage like mm-hmm. and the second being is you know what do i do if i have a problem mm-hmm. so the first in terms of the information um the comreg has on on his web on its website a coverage map for mobile services 
and it goes down to the detail for each service provider in the market uh, for the different various different technologies and it it it, it um, classifies the coverage predictions um in terms of um you know no coverage up to very good and so on so it classifies those so what we would encourage people to do is uh whether they're um whether they're uh, currently thinking of changing provider or whether they just want to see what kind of coverage in the areas that they visit or they frequent. So I might be, for example, like a lot of people, uh, you know, working from my home environment, I might commute then to the office and so on. So I have a particular set of locations that coverage is important for me. So we would encourage people to go onto the site and look at that and look at the various different providers. We also have an app that does that, but it also goes to the extent that if I if I pick a location, I can see for various different providers is one is one fair, is one good, and and is one excellent or, or, or so on. Obviously, the better the coverage prediction at a location, the better um, you would the 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 customer experience will be. And I suppose I should say. Just to clarify this, the the map, the the coverage map we have is an outdoor coverage map. Now, I'm, the reason I'm making that very clear is that indoor coverage will uh, vary uh, to outdoor coverage for for a number of reasons. But one of those reasons, are, you know, is related to the building materials in the in the in the building that I'm in. Um, you know, what kind of uh, walls and so on, and uh, without going into technical details, but we have provided information for consumers on that, that you know, that might affect their signal indoors. And we've also said, uh, given um, information to consumers on how to um, improve their, their experience indoors as well. So that just to, just to kind of say, that's information on, you know, what I can likely expect uh, the predicted coverage from each service provider to help me um, and and how how I can improve it. And we also provide information on what affects that, you know, how close I am to the base station and various different things like that. So that people have consumers have a better understanding as to what what is impacting them specifically. We've also published information on handsets and um, how the, how how they deal with various different um, applications such as data and voice and so on. So there's a number of different factors, I suppose, is really what I'm saying, affecting coverage. And there could be different things that, that happen. You know, a building gets put up um, beside you and that's impacting your coverage all of a sudden. So it's, it's a very unique kind of um, troubleshooting process, if, if you want to put it that way. So when consumers have issues or, uh, you know, sudden changes in in um, ex coverage experience and so on. Yes, it is something that they can come to Comreg about. We can we can kind of try and understand what has happened and potentially interrogate it with the operator and see, you know, is there solutions for particular customers and so on. And I think a number of different service providers, mobile service providers, if you do change, they give you a, a, an initial period to 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 ensure um, that uh, the, the coverage at your that the locations that you're worried about are are uh, in line with your expectation and so on. So there is a process there. I suppose one thing I would also talk about because obviously mobile coverage is something that people are are keen to understand, but also in particular with the the COVID environment, you know, broadband and um, I suppose broadband speeds and and that we also have a role there. Um, in that there are um, uh, there are rights for for customers to have in their contract um, certain details such as minimum maximum average uh, speeds um, and the normally available speeds that should be available. So when you're signing up to your broadband service, you should be um, you you will get as part of your contract what is, is it that I'm actually signing up to or what is it that the 
service provider is actually promising me and what can I do if that's not delivered. How much of the onus of that is on the consumer to read through the terms and conditions? Because very often I get emails into our email address here on Tech Talk of people saying, I signed up to a particular provider because they said I could get up to whatever speed. But then when you read the fine fine print, it's yes, that is the speed it can go up to, but the minimum guaranteed speed is different. So does the, does, does the consumer have any recourse if they come to you saying, you know, I signed up based on an ad I saw on a bus post, whereas actually I've only now read through my terms and conditions after signing up and the minimum speed is not enough for me? I think it's fair to say that uh, the, 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 the contractual terms, I, I suppose, are the, are the binding terms. However, uh, without getting too detailed in it, there is also rights in terms of how the minimum compares with the with the advertised speed. I suppose the advice that that uh, Comrade would give to consumers is that um, you know be aware of uh, the the contracted speed. Um, the advertised speed is is kind of is that is an advertised speed. The contracted speed is what you are legally entitled to. Those are set out in the in your contract. And and I I I understand what you're saying is you know consumers might ha- might have several pages of a contract and and what's important. And I suppose where Comreg um. It helps there is that we um, we have a, a comparison tool um, and one of the things that that we're looking to to kind of enhance that with is the is the actual uh, speeds that are in the contract so in in helping consumers to compare relevant and I suppose key factors of their service that would be they those parameters would likely be something we would consider quite important for people to be aware of when they are buying a service and we we help people compare the various different offerings in that respect so to answer your question more directly Jess it's a bit of both Mm -hmm. I think consumers need to be aware that these are important contractual terms Comreg can help um, pull those out to the fore so that customers can find them better um, and to be aware of them and you know, the awareness of this will grow, uh, I think, um, certainly over the next number of months. And, and it will be the new a, a new thing that people will be looking for when they're, you know, either on the while they're signing up online or over the phone, they'll be asking these questions. And we would encourage them to ask those questions at sign up stage. I found this so interesting and enlightening to hear just explained in plain English all the different issues we've spoken about over the last 20 minutes or so. Uh, I'm not going to encourage people to bombard you, but if people do have queries or if they're looking for advice or guidance, um, can you just tell us how to get in touch with your office? And again, those steps that people need to have sort of gone through before they come to you looking for a resolution. Yes, Jess, that, I'll do that now. So basically, we have a, a number of different channels, but the we, you can phone us on 804-9668 um, or you can contact us by email on consumerline at comreg.ie. We also um, accept a, a postal, uh, so you can you can send us a letter either if you, if you like to do that. And we're at 1 Dockland Central uh, Guild Street is our postal address. Um, or you can text Comreg um, to 51500 uh, to receive a call back. So we have a number of different things. Again, people mightn't remember those. So I would just encourage you to go on to comreg.ie. You'll see a contact us section and you can pick your preferred channel that way. And that might be the best way. Amazing stuff. Barbara Delaney, Comreg Retail and Consumer Services Director. Thank you so much for taking the time to guide us through all of that. And uh, we hope to have you again on the show soon. No problem. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. Tech Talk. Tech Talk. Rate and subscribe. Welcome back to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com is the email address, or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. A device landed on my desk a number of years ago from an Irish company called Run Angel. It looks like a fitness tracker, but rather than focusing on your steps, it looks to keep you safe. I'm joined now by David and 
Ellen Karen, founders of Run Angel. Uh, you're both very welcome to the show. Before we talk through the device itself, Ellen, you might just give us a bit of a background as to where the idea for the device came from. So um, the concept kept about came about, I suppose, I started running um, several years ago and I found that I was running early in the morning or late in the evening due to work commitments. And I was looking regularly at uh, running forums and reading posts of nervous encounters or attacks on runners. And I found that these would stay with me on my daily runs. So I ended up running with my phone in hand which of course wasn't ideal, so that if I was in an emergency, I could contact David relatively quickly. Then it kind of came to a point where I investigated what was actually available to a runner as a safety device. And to be honest, we found very, very little out in the market, um, only alarms that you know, we would have had maybe back in college that were cumbersome, that you held around your neck and that you had to pull out a pin. But there, I was looking for a device, kind of one device that could, as I thought, emit a loud sound and send out alerts to family and friends at the same time and something that was easily accessible. And there was nothing there on the market. And basically that's how the the idea was born. And so how did you go from sort of the concept to creating a device because the initial device uh the run angel device that i had for review a number of years ago it looks like just a fitness tracker but instead of the screen there's obviously the small circle where the sound comes from so how did you go about the design and the features that you wanted to incorporate yeah um i'll take that one um basically we we don't come from an engineering background We, we we had the light bulb moment around the kitchen table and we essentially had to go and ask others how we would build a device like this. Um, and, we, and we suddenly realized why there wasn't anything out in the marketplace like it, be- because simply we were told by many doors that we knocked on that it couldn't be done. Um, because what, what, what you're really doing is you have to first and foremost build an acoustic chamber and that would resonate a sound. And then on top of that, what we want to do is yes, let's go add in you know, some Bluetooth chip so that if you need to press the button and tell your nearest and dearest where you are, the alerts will go out by phone, by email, and people will see your whereabouts. And also you, at the back of it all this, you still have this very loud alarm, but that's a lot of components. Um, and to fit all that on a wrist- Tiny footprint, yeah. Tiny footprint was, uh, was very challenging. So it took us years to, to kind of master um, a customized acoustic chamber we had to nail that first to make the sound the sound was always going to be the number one uh, selling feature for us that's what the research is pointing at so we hired an acoustic engineer and uh, we approached various colleges on the island of ireland and asked could they assist we went through numerous prototypes um a very long kind of iterative process from, yeah. from the size of your head down to the size of your thumbnail um and at the same time we couldn't uh we couldn't skimp on the, on the sounds. We needed to reach that 120, 130 decibel range. Um, and once we'd reached that range, then the next obstacle or hurdle for us was to tune the frequency to make the sound uh, susceptible to human hearing, um, which as, engineer, as, as not being engineers, acoustic engineers, is something we didn't factor in in the early days. We just assumed we get a very loud 130 dB alarm and happy days were off and running, if you excuse the pun. So it was not necessarily back to drawing board. It was another iteration of prototypes, um, shaving micro mills off an acoustic chamber in order to make it sound louder and louder. Um, and and look at the marketplace for small Bluetooth chips so we could sit underneath the acoustic chamber that we could use with a mobile application. So it, it took a long time to get us there. Um, and as I said, this is not a product that you, you, you look to get in China. This is something that we made here in Ireland and we designed here in Ireland. And we used, you know, Irish engineers and Irish mobile app developers. Yeah, I suppose, yes, also that there's that aspect to it. It it is a two-tiered product. So you have your device, um, which emits the sound, but then there is also the IoT aspect to the product, which is the the app, the mobile application, and the connectivity, as as David mentioned there with Bluetooth. So it was it was the combination of both yeah. aspects and two tiers that, that produced the end result. Yeah, and, and then we had to step back from that as well, Jess, and, and we were very focused on the whole IP behind the, the company and the brand and Run Angel itself. So we, we wanted to go away and build up an IP 
folder. We wanted not just have the US patent on the acoustic chamber, and uh, we, we wanted to extend it beyond that. We, you know, we wanted to go after community trademarks, um, our own trademark run angel, which, which wasn't an easy task because when you put run in front of anything in the US, it's going to be objected to. So that was, that was a timely process, but we got there in the end. And then it was community designs, as you said yourself at the beginning there, you know, it, it looked like a fitness tracker. Mm. So we needed to essentially register community design uh, to make sure there was no issues, um, which we successfully did as well. Uh, talk and then to obviously, me. Yeah. obviously in the last few years, we've been granted a US patent, which was a, which was a big coup for the company. Talk to me a little bit about the, the setup, because you've mentioned there about the device and then there's also the app. So when you get a device, you pair it to your phone. You, you obviously get to select your emergency contacts that will get a shout if, you know, something goes awry. But does that mean then that you still need to have your phone on your person to, to activate it? Uh, yes, if, if you want to have both aspects, if you want to have the connectivity. However, because we've put so much focus on the, the sound, it, it works as a standalone product as well in relation to that the sound is emitted straight away. Um, so, yeah, yeah. If, if you want to have the alert notifications to go out, then your phone has to be in close proximity. I, I think in our, in our research process, I, I, I think, you know, we, we were looking at doing the standalone GPS models and, and the chip components uh, were, were too big for that and would it be too costly in the end user so what we were doing as well we were working with running usa and looking at their statistics and their findings and what runners were doing and were using and accessories and brands and things like that and one thing we did find that um a very high percentage 90 to 95 percent of runners take their phone with them on an armband and a pouch mm. so you know as a safety measure anyway uh, runners were taking their phones so we were just essentially piggybacking on the back of that connecting with the phones in order to use the app in order to trigger the alarm from the wrist uh, to send out the location alert so we yeah some you could say that do you need your phone we'd say yes you do need your phone but also on top of that we encourage people to take their phones when they're out running because if they come across an accident or if god forbid they're attacked um, because we've seen instances of runners who haven't had their phone with them in other countries like in the US and Australia and Scandinavia and, and hairy situations. So we, 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 we promote it, mm. um, the, the safety aspect of having your phone with you at all times. One of the things that um, I suppose sat a bit funny with me when I, when I got the Run Angel device uh, in for review was the fact that and this is going to sound like a feminist rant and I don't mean it to in any way, shape or form, but it kind of reminded me of the fact that we need to, you know, that the fact that there's a device there for particularly aimed at women, if they are out running, that they can then, you know, get help. How did you go about marketing the device and did you get any sort of pushback or any raised eyebrows at the notion of, marketing a device for women in the event that they are attacked? No, on the contrary, actually. Um, it was very much welcomed uh, with open arms. Um, I think the, the way we looked at it and the way that we promoted our product, that was very much promoting peace of mind. We weren't focusing on a fear factor. Um, this was about, this would be basically, if you want to bring it down to basics, as simple as if somebody puts on a seatbelt, wears a seatbelt every day, or even currently now people wear a face mask. And this was just pop on your run angel um, and go out and enjoy your run. So it was it was very much welcomed. Yeah, it, yeah. like obviously we take that point. We, 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 we've done many interviews and, and debates on that, on that very topic. Like, is there a need for safety devices like run angel? You know, unfortunately there is. I, I would prefer if there wasn't, but that there actually is, there is a need. And, we're a global company, um, so we, we're looking at global markets. We're looking at uh, countries outside of Ireland, like the US and Canada. And, and we are very much US-centric. We are US-centric, yeah, yeah. And, and that's where we were upon launch. But unfortunately, this is the situation we're living in. Um, and the pushback, not necessarily, you know, because we, we work with various agencies in the US, um, so, so they kind of promote us to that regard mm. as a kind of a consideration. Our, our a site our website our social media our promotion our interviews we don't market fear 
we okay. don't say uh, you're going to be attacked. You need a run angel. We don't do that at all. We we purposely stayed away from that. But also, aside from the um, attack side of things, you know, we have found that you know we we've got testimonials from from numerous customers all over the globe. Um, some examples would be like situations in where it was has been used. For example, in South Africa, um, we had various bike courier companies that actually used our product because the couriers' bikes were being robbed when they were stopped at traffic lights. Mm. So they used their run angel to scare off the would-be um, yeah, would criminal be, who was actually yeah. taking the bike. We also find that our, our product is being used by people um, in kind of coyote and bear attacks in the States and in Canada um, to frighten off dogs. Also then as well that people actually, they sustain an injury while they're on yeah. a run and yeah. that they find that. that, that actually, that's actually a big one, Jess. Actually, you know, when, when, when you're talking about a safety device, people immediately think, you know, it's about attacks, you know, and that's the, the, the nasty side of the, the business. But it's, it's not just attacks. It's, it's injury as well. Um, and we've received reports from Run Angel users, especially in marathon training. Um, where they've, they've fallen, sustained an injury. They're in, in, in some place, it's happened to me when we were prototyping Run Angel. I was in Canarnia National Park and I fell and broke my ankle and I was wearing a prototype. And I, I pressed the alarm and Ellen was able to see where I was in the Canarnia National Park and the ranger was able to come to me. So it was an injury, it wasn't an attack. Um, so it's kind of, we don't necessarily throw all the statistics up on our site saying this is the amount of women have been attacked. This is the safest time you should be running at. We, we, we don't do that. Mm. We, you know, we, we don't feel there's a need to do that. It's out there. Um, it is happening. It's unfortunate it's happening, but this is just a peace of mind product. And at the same time, Jess, it's, it's a non-lethal device. And there's a big difference between Run Angel and other products in the marketplace. And maybe I'm speaking here about the US products. And you've got pepper spray and you've got uh, finger knives now, which is just bizarre. Um, we're a non-lethal device, so it cannot be used. On it yourself. cannot be turned against you. It cannot be give me your pepper spray and I'm going to use it against you, or you're, I'm going to take your finger knife and that's it. Game um, over. There have even been reports in in Ireland and the UK that people are now carrying bottles of deodorant and hairspray in their handbags to use in the event of an attack. Once again, they could be used against you. Yeah. Whereas if you have a run angel. It's as David yeah. said there, it's not me. But at, yeah. at, at, at the, the foremost point in all of this for us is the sound. It's, mm. It has always been the sound for us. You know, there are there are apps, there are iPhone watches, there whatever you say, there are Fitbits and Garmin's now doing this connectivity where they can send alerts to, to your nearest and dearest. That's great. You know, I'm delighted that their companies bigger than us are doing things like that, are now recognizing that an issue is at hand. But what we're doing is we're doing sound and we're doing the tech side of things and the sound is so so important i can't overemphasize that like the definition of a personal attack alarm is that to give you that window of opportunity to make your escape mm. to distract a potential attacker and get out of dodge that's what that's what it's for and and in our research dealing with in, the incarcerated of, of people who've attacked women and men and we've asked them what essentially stops an attack they will always say sound so when i see companies major companies coming out selling the connectivity side of things, selling the messaging and the location alerts, I get very uneasy because if I'm out running or Ellen's out running and God forbid one of us is attacked or my mother or sister is attacked, um, pressing, pressing a button on an, on an app or an alarm that sends a silent alert that says where you are is not good. It's, just, it's, not, it's not enough. It's not enough. The attacker doesn't know you've done it. How long it's going to take for somebody to get to you is the other side of the coin. So we use both. We very much promote sound. sound. Mm. And that's why all our IP is in our sound. And that's why our acoustic chamber is, you know, it's customized, it's, it's patented and, and, and it does both. We have a nice Bluetooth chip underneath there as well. So it is sound. It is always going to be sound first. You also have another device called the wing. What's the difference between the original Run Angel and then the wing? Yeah, functionality is pretty much the same. <laughs> However, um, the Run Angel was worn on wrist only or is worn on wrist only, whereas and was aimed more at a focused um, target market of, of the runner or those that, that follow outdoor pursuits. Um, the wing is a device that can be worn anywhere on the body. It can be worn on clothing, it can be worn on bike handlebars, on bags. So basically it suits all all lifestyles. Yeah, it's, it's, it's multi-targeted for us. When, when we came out, it was very much on the wrist, but, you know, when we, fitness trackers, fitness wearables, running watches, I, uh, the iWatch were all on the wrist, so, you, you know, at the end of the day, 
for the most part, everyone only has two risks, so competition. And risk real estate actually is quite precious. So yeah. we have to kind of adjust our, our, our model and say, well, why don't we take it off the wrist and, and put it anywhere else? Clip it on the body, clip it on the bag, clip it on running pants, clip it anywhere. Uh, and just and make doing it so as well, it yeah. has opened up new markets to us as well. Exactly. Like, yeah. It has done that. And, and we've returned We've returned to our, our running ambassadors throughout, throughout the globe and asked them to test it first. And, and they found, found it far easier at times to wear their wing on their running pants or on their running vest or even walking or going to, and now going, to, going back to college. So different markets are opening up for us now just by changing the location of our, our, our wearable tech. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned about the wrist real estate because I know a few people who have a, a watch that they love. Uh, so even getting to th- them to wear a fitness tracker is one thing. So it's it's yeah. very yes. innovative, I suppose, that you, you've brought out this device that, as you said, can be worn anywhere. You can have it on your backpack if you're going to school or college, anything like that. Um, you've mentioned that the, the production and the design and all the work is done here in Ireland, but you do have customers right around the world uh how like what what's the plans for the future of the company are you going to con- continue to base yourselves here in ireland and just uh, sell to the rest of the world or would you contemplate or do you already have offices in different parts of the world no we're, we're, we're for us it was always we were always going to build it in ireland and and you know we're proud of that we have it on our packaging and you know anytime we've done interviews around the world and not just the fact that we're husband and wife tech founders uh, there's, there's an intrigue about you know you're building a wearable tech product in, in your home country and in Ireland which wouldn't be we'll say notable for wearable tech manufacturing or assembly for us we can jump in a car and and go to our production line and we can see it being made put together being, being boxed, tested being tested yeah. and that is the biggest thing for us because you're, you're championing safety here and for us we need to know that what the end user is putting on their wrist or on their bag or anywhere else works mm-hmm. and works when it's needed so when we go up and we see our products being tested in acoustic chambers for sound or being paired with various icons and Google Android uh, smartphone devices, it gives us peace of mind that our product is working and that, you know, when it's being shipped out, happy days, you know, it, it, every, every box is ticked. So what we do is we're based in Ireland, we're based in Cork. We have fulfillment centers around the world in US, Australia, Scandinavia. Um, so if we get any order through the, through the e-commerce site, whichever location is nearest, it will fulfill that order. Um, again, if we're dealing with a retailer in a, in a certain location, again, the f- fulfillment center in those locations would deliver our stock. But everything is, 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 is essentially uh, in Ireland. Brilliant. Well, look, it sounds fantastic. I'm delighted to see the company going from strength to strength. It's always great to hear Irish innovators making waves around the world. The company, again, is called Run Angel. You can find more information on runangel.com. David and Ellen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's great. Thanks for having Jess. Take care. Coming up next, we'll talk about my favourite subject in the world, GDPR. Tech Talk. Tech Talk. Rate and subscribe. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, the issue of data protection is one that's on a lot of people's minds at the moment. Maybe you are realising how much time you spend online, your reliance on online services, or, you know, maybe the HSE cyber attack was a bit of a wake-up call for you. On September 7th, the first conference on digital consent run by the SFI Adapt Centre will take place online and it's going to examine how we share our data and how organisations are using that information. One of the speakers at the online event is Dr Johnny Ryan, a senior fellow at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and he joins me now. Johnny, welcome to Tech Talk. Before we talk through some of the issues that the ICCL works on, can you just give us a brief explainer as to what exactly it is? So the ICCL has been part of Irish life for several decades. It was set up in the 70s, and it's been at the forefront of every major step towards a more progressive, kinder, safer Ireland. And one of the areas that ICCL works in is data protection and privacy. So the area of data protection and privacy has obviously gone through a huge development in recent years. We know everybody is talking about GDPR the entire time. People are now aware of their privacy settings on their phone, on their home assistance, all of these different devices. So how has that technological evolution um, 
impacted, influenced and I suppose infiltrated the work that, that ICCL does? One of the things that we've been seeing over the last few years is that there's a new form of spam on the internet and that means on websites but also on your mobile device, Jess. And that new form of spam is called consent. It's a brilliant idea but not the way industry has implemented it. And I'll tell you why. Every time you visit a commercial website or use a commercial app, nearly every time you load one of those things, data about your interests is broadcast to tens or hundreds of companies. And that lets those technology companies who represent advertisers in theory, compete for the opportunity to show you an ad. Now that sounds like a good thing, maybe to some people, but here are the kind of things about you that are included in those broadcasts about you every time you go online, every time you load a page or use an app. The data include your inferred sexual orientation, political views, religion, health conditions, what you're reading or watching or listening to, and where you are at that moment. Any of those things can be sent. And accompanying them are ID codes that are as unique to you as is your, for example, PPS number. And that means that all of those data about you can be added to hidden dossiers about you. Now, everything that I'm describing here is backed up in documentation in ICCL litigation against the industry across Europe. Those dossiers, those hidden dossiers that are based on what you're doing online every day matter because they can affect your employment prospects, what deals you're offered, or they might expose you to micro-targeted disinformation. So what I'm talking about here is the biggest data breach ever recorded. It occurs hundreds of billions of times a day, every day. And what the online advertising industry calls consent is just a thin veneer of compliance theater covering this breach. And it's a nuisance to us all. And it also happens to be unlawful under the GDPR. Okay, so let's just break this down a little bit because you mentioned GDPR and you mentioned the word consent and those two things have been heralded as, you know, a consumer champion and something that's there fighting our corner to ensure that any time a company gets access to our information, whatever level of information it is, that we are aware of that and that we understand what amount of information, where it's going, how long it's being held for, how it's going to be used, all of that sort of stuff. But you're saying that's not the case at all. No, unfortunately not. Um, the GDPR has a title of only four words, General Data Protection Regulation. The online advertising industry cannot protect the data. And that means it's actually not allowed to ask for it. Now, the industry knew this before it launched its consent spam system. And we know this because under Freedom of Information, we obtained documentation showing they knew they weren't able to get consent back in 2017. But then in 2018, the industry decided to launch its system that now spams us all every day, plaguing us with this fake consent. Now that has to end. And ICCL is litigating and pushing across Europe to make exactly that happen. In Belgium, we have a procedure using the GDPR to force the industry to stop spamming people with this fake consent. And we expect a result from that in the coming months. When you say the companies can't protect the data, what do you mean by that? I mean, when you visit a web page or use an app, as I described, you get this broadcast of data about you to tens or hundreds of companies. And once the data are sent out, there is no technical measure whatsoever to protect those data. We don't know what happened to them. Once the data are gone, they're really gone, as the man says in the ads. That applies to our most intimate secrets on the internet every day. There is no technical measure to protect the data. And so what we're describing here is an ongoing data breach. I know having interviewed um, representatives from Google, from Facebook, from a lot of the big tech companies over the last number of years, they would say that they have massively transformed their levels of transparency and tried to give users more information, more control, more options to opt out of things. What would you say to that? 
Well, I would say that's the kind of thing that they would say. Um, we have plenty of evidence to the contrary. Okay. Uh, for those who are interested in this area and for those who are wondering, you know, how do you go about life in the modern age uh, without engaging with online services? Does such a thing exist? Is it a case of we need to be eyes wide open and we, the consumer, need to, you know, watch what we're putting out there, watch what we're engaging with? Or is it up to the companies to change and will they do it? The law is designed so that we as individuals do not have to worry. We're not supposed to be afraid and watching everything we do online. And the reason for that is that the law established supervisory authorities like the DPC, and it gave them literally awesome powers, Jess. The DPC and its colleagues across Europe have the power to go and get a warrant and kick down pretty much any door. They can compel evidence and obtain any information that they need. And if, for example, a representative of a tech firm were to lie to a member of, of the DPC, an officer appointed by the DPC, under certain conditions, that person can be put in jail. Now, they have the powers that are required to protect us. It is not for us to be worried about changing our lives. We should be able to live freely. The problem though, and it's an acute one, is that our enforcers are not yet doing their jobs properly. And this is something that the Justice Committee of the Iraqis noticed and, and reported on just before the summer. There's a very important report that came out of the Iraqis Justice Committee that says that the DPC needs a independent review to see how it can be strengthened and reformed. And also the Minister for Justice needs to use her power to appoint two additional commissioners so that we don't just have one person responsible for everything at the top of the DPC. We have a college of commissioners of three, which is what the Irish Data Protection Act provided for. Yeah, so I have had numerous interactions with the DPC and I have found them always to be incredibly helpful. Uh, but one issue that does strike me is that perhaps there just isn't enough manpower there to get everything done at the speed that the consumer would like. Uh, the, is the issue like a funding issue? Do you think more manpower could help with these problems? The issue may be one of resources. Um, it may not be. Uh, we um, revealed uh, in a story earlier this year that the DPC had said it needed to move from a, an ancient internal tech system called Lotus Notes to something more modern and receive the budget to do that in, a, in advance of the GDPR in 2018. What we discovered in our investigation is that actually despite that budget almost approaching 1 million euro now, far over the original expectation, the new system had yet to launch years later. So there do appear to be problems that are not just problems of resource. And we do need to get to the bottom of them and have an independent review so that everyone who wants to do their jobs and protect the citizens from online harms is in a position to do their jobs. Are you hopeful that um, the issues that you sort of outlined at the top, the, the consent spam, is that something that you believe is going to be rectified? Yes. ICCL is leading a group of complainants and NGOs in Belgium. We're going against the uh, group that set up that system across Europe, that system of consent spam. It's called IAB Europe. And I think we're going to see a positive result in the next few months. It's been quite a long road to get to this point, but there's a, a degree of inevitability. I think um, as you see our legal actions maturing across the EU, um, we're going to see compliance. My regret is that this has taken so long and that it was for us to do it where actually, in fact, it should have been enforcers acting themselves far more promptly. Dr. Johnny Ryan of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, thank you very much for joining us here on Tech Talk. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. John Fardy's up next here on News Talk. I'll chat to you next week.